Hello and welcome to Weathering the Storm, stories of the climate crisis from Alberta and around the world. This series is part of the Community Podcast Initiative in partnership with the Climate Disaster Project. I'm your host, Olivia Whistle. And I'm Charlotte Voss. And in today's episode, you will hear two personal stories about major climate disasters and significant events from those who witnessed them firsthand. Our guests today are Jared Whistle and Jacob Voss. Jared Whistle is the president of Whistle Contracting. He was able to use his company's resources to help those deeply affected by the 2013 floods that devastated Calgary. Here's our conversation. Jared Wessel. I was born and raised in Calgary, Alberta. I was born in 1975, so I'm 47 years old. I grew up mostly in the Willow Park neighborhood of, of Calgary. I did go to school in Edmonton, Alberta for one year, but then I attended the University of Calgary graduating in 1999. After graduation, I uh, worked in the automotive industry for a time as well as business consulting, later growing, joining our family business, Whistle Contracting, which is a civil construction contractor in Calgary. And at the, you know, I'd worked my way up in the company to uh, vice president, um, I think around 2011, I was promoted. So we were working on uh, in uh, projects like the West LRT um, project in Calgary for the West LRT line. Uh, we did all the utility work on that project as well as um, uh, building subdivisions and uh, doing other uh, infrastructure work for the city of Calgary. Uh, as well, at that time, we just opened an office uh, buying a company in Lethbridge, actually, prior to uh, the flood. During the flood, when it first started, I was um, out in McLean Creek, 4 by 4 with some friends. We'd planned this um, months, probably a month before, as I'd had a friend uh, from high school that was in from Toronto, and I'd just gotten a, uh, a Jeep Wrangler. And so I'd planned to go out that Thursday morning to go 4 by 4 and we were actually out in McLean Creek when the flood started. Early on the morning of uh, the floods, uh, it was a Thursday, uh, I recall hearing that uh, there was flooding happening in Canmore at the time. You know, I listened to the news to understand where the flooding was and, and thought, well, it's not going to be affecting us where we were where we were going to be going. Yeah, so we headed out to uh, McLean Creek to go 4 by 4 And as we got out to Bragg Creek, we actually found that the Highway 66, which goes from the Bragg Creek turnoff out to McLean Creek, was actually closed by the RCMP. And they weren't letting people into Bragg, Bragg Creek either. So we actually turned and went south on, I think it's Highway 791 maybe. Um, that's actually not the right number. But we went south um, from that intersection and entered McLean Creek from the south side of the, um, of the park. Uh, once we got into there, we could actually see there was quite a bit of higher water flow um, in, the, in McLean Creek itself. And... Um, there was quite a bit of water running in what are typically dry stream beds in the 4x4 area. So we spent uh, that day going up into the into the hills and the mountains, 4x4ing, and it was raining really hard, but on and off. It would come and rain for 20 minutes, just torrential downpours with thunder and lightning, and then it would stop for 20 minutes. 
and we were probably out that way for about five or six hours. Um, we stopped to eat a, uh, eat, um, uh, like a, an early dinner and, um, as it had actually stopped raining for a while. So we were outside and there was a, I remember a loud, loud crack of light of thunder. And we kind of looked at each other and said, you know, it's been raining for a long time. We should probably get out of where we are. So we went back in the way we came and it started to rain and that 40 minutes on the trail going out, it just rained so hard. I've never seen it raining like that. We, there was probably six inches to a foot of running water down the trails. And when we got back to the main road that goes through McLean Creek and went to head south, uh, to leave the park, the, uh, the flooding in the, what I mentioned before, the dry stream beds was, we were crossing huge amounts of water just to get out. And then we actually got to the McLean Creek bridge the, we found the bridge had been, uh, half washed out. Um, so, and, and the road was flooded for about 200, 200 to 300 feet. Um, there was about two, two feet of, of, uh, sort of lightly running water. And then the, the McLean Creek was running really fast under the bridge and had washed out the backside of the bridge, but we were able to leave, uh, be able to leave the park. And as we drove back in through, um, you know, the areas of Pritis and all those areas on 22X, as you looked the water was everywhere and the ditches of the highway were flooding and you looked into some of the fields there and it was just water everywhere you looked. Um, and as we came into Calgary, um, and there's actually no cell service out in McLean Creek. So we weren't able to talk to anybody. So we didn't know. So once we got back to cell service, which is about 10 minutes outside of McLean Creek, my phone lit up and my wife had called me 10 times. My mom had called me 10 times all wondering where we were because they were telling us everything's flooding. Um, and then as we got back into Calgary, we could see, uh, you know, cross the Bull River on, uh, what is now Stony Trail, Highway 22X. And I could see just how much water, um, you know, there was in the Bull River and realized that the flood was going to be more significant than I had thought it might be. I do remember that whole day, there's that smell of rain, kind of like the ozone smell. And I remember that being pretty strong that day. Um, the sounds later in the day, I mean, of the pounding of rain on, on my Jeep, um, and the sound of the water, um, running through the ditches a few times that we got out. And particularly when we left and went over the bridge, I remember slowing down when we drove over that, the bridge that was washing out as we were going over it. And I, I rolled down my window a little bit in the, it was in the pouring rain to try and see how bad the bridge was as we got up to it, realizing that, you know, we, if we'd come much later, we probably wouldn't get out. But I do remember the next morning, um, you know, I, actually my parents came over and stayed with us because they lived in P Quarry Park, which fortunately didn't flood, but they, they did get evacuated from their house around 11 o'clock at night. But then the next morning, I do remember going out to the um, Bull River Pathway System in McKenzie Lake area and looking down and seeing the site of the Bull River being hundreds of meters wide, basically covering the entire lower area of Fish Creek um, at the end of Bow Bottom Trail. Um, and that was, uh, that was quite a sight to see that much water, uh, water down there. You know, one of the first things that we were able to do as a company was to help out the Sutina Nation. They called the, the first night of the flood when the Elbow River was flooding and uh, they were losing a bank um, on the Elbow River. So we sent a truck out there and uh, we were picking up 
uh, Lego blocks from one of the suppliers, concrete suppliers in town and taking them out there as they were trying to shore up this bank. And basically as we would haul them out there, they'd take them off with a, with an excavator and set them down on the edge of the bank and the water was running, rushing so fast it would wash 3,000 pound um, concrete Lego blocks away. Um, that was the that was the first night. Um, within two days, um, we were out helping clean up in downtown, and uh, we had uh, we put uh, we had some large pumps. So we had pumps inside the saddle dome to pump the saddle dome out, as well. We had pumps in um, the city, not the city hall building, the blue building, which is the city administration building, um, the parkade had flooded so we had multiple pumps in the parkade we also had pumps in the lrt tunnels downtown we were pumping out the lrt tunnels we also had a, a hydrovac truck that we sent out and were using to hydrovac various things it was in the saddle dome helping clean out the inside of the saddle dome at one point um, i think we cleaned out inside the parkade with our with our hydrovac truck as well the weekend um this was right before canada day weekend i believe um, I do, I do recall shortly after the floods, um, going to help, um, one of my dad's cousins who had a shop on the main street in high river that had been flooded. So I took, um, some fans, uh, shop vacs, um, maybe even some pumps down to help them out. Um, probably three to three or four days after the flood. And I got into the you know, high river was still at that point cordoned off but I was able to get in because I was delivering supplies and I do remember this the town of High River smelt um, kind of swampy and stale um, and then I went inside the uh, the business and I helped them set fans and stuff up for an hour or two and the same thing inside their business smelt um, kind of swampy and stale um, um, stagnant water smell um, um, that you might have and, and I was surprised at how quickly that smell uh, you know was already in those areas as it only been you know flooded a few days before that um, after the floods on a corporate level um, with my business we actually went down to East Elbow Park um, after the floods and helped do a cleanup there so we we paid some of our employees to go down there on the Canada Day weekend we donated some equipment and basically we went down there and helped carry things out of people's basements to the street. And then we had a, a wheel loader there and some, some trucks that we were loading the, the dump, the, the material out of the, the houses into and haul, we were hauling it to the dump. And down there again, the smell was pretty bad. Um, you know, people were carrying things out of their basements and it was actually quite hard to see, you know, as you're helping these people and they're in tears because you know, their lives have been affected. They've lost keepsakes. Their homes are, are you know, significantly damaged. And um, so, you know, that hit me on, a, on an emotional level for, my, for myself, seeing these people and, and what, they, what they were going through. And, you know, I was happy to be able to help um, clean up their basements, you know, as, as we, I think we had about 40 or 50 employees down there. Um, you know, we just walk, walked from one, you know, just from house to house asking who needed help in, in groups of three. And we would just carry whatever they had out of their basements and up, upstairs to the, to, the out, to the outside and piled it on the street where we would come in and then pick it up and take it away along with the city had some of their own equipment down there as well. 
a lot of the city's riverbanks were damaged, um, which over the next several years, um, Whistle Contracting was involved in doing flood repair to um, to various areas of the city. So we first started with a project down in home on Home Road, uh, outside of Bowness. Um, it's actually a high bank with houses quite high on a hill, but the bottom of the bank had been had been damaged in the flood. So we built um, roads down to the river from up high and then put a large diameter rock riprap um, and dirt down at the bottom to reshore those banks up. Uh, in 2014 and 2015, we did multiple trope projects like that around, around Calgary, uh, including one in Diamond Cove and uh, one over by Glenmore, Glenmore Trail and um, the br bridge that goes over the Bull River. Uh, we also, early in 2014, we helped repair the Center Street Bridge. Um, one of the piers, uh, bridge support piers, um, well, after it was surveyed by engineers, realized that it had undermined under the pier. So we went into the river with, again, large diameter riprap and um, filled a large hole in that was built, that was up around this pier uh, with riprap. So riprap is large um, um, blasted rock. Um, typically limestone that comes from, uh, uh, there's a few mines in Alberta that would make it out in the mountains. And it can be various sizes, class one, they come in classes. Class one is the largest size, which is a, typically a half meter uh, or a larger size rock down through to class three, which is smaller rock. So most of the repair was done with class one riprap because, and what happens is, is when you stack these rock and line a riverbank with them because of their angularity, they actually provide really good protection from fast-flowing water because the water can't break them out and roll them over very easily. So that's why riprap is used to protect uh, riverbanks. Um, the other thing that we did is we actually had just bought a barbecue trailer um, that had just come in. So what we did was, is when all these volunteers were working down helping people, we had our barbecue trailer down there and we were cooking... Um, hot dogs and we had bags of chips and giving out water so we parked it at the Safeway on the corner of 4th Street and 25th Avenue which was right in the heart of the flood area and we let people know that we were there and we would feed them so we fed hundreds of people um, I think for about five or six days in a row um, that were helping um, there were people that were just volunteering to help people and then people whose homes were, were damaged and couldn't cook, um, you know, they were coming to get food. As an uh, option in university, I took some um, geography and geology classes. And one of the classes I took, and this would probably be in like 1997 or 1998, so predating the flood by, you know, a good four, thir 15 years or so. Um, I had one professor who showed a map. Um, we were studying the geology around um, southern Alberta in this class. And um, you know, this was an optional class for me because I actually took, um, took a, a management degree at the University of Calgary. But I quite enjoyed geography and geology as well. So this professor started talking about floods we'd had in, in the province. And back in 1995, we had a, 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 a fairly decent flood, uh, particularly in High River. And Calgary was more minorly flooded at that time on the Elbow and the Bow River's rise. Uh, the Bow River particularly came up, the Elbow not as much. Um, but what was interesting is this professor was talking about that 
particular flood and said that at no particular time in Calgary's history have we had major floods on both the Elbow and the Bow Rivers. And when we'd had floods, you know, they were moderate flood events on one river or the other at one time. So he actually took out, and in this day we weren't using um, computer slideshows, uh, you know, uh, PowerPoint presentations. It was actually an overhead with a transparency. But he had printed off a, a map of the city of Calgary, and it actually showed what it would look like if we had major floods on both the Elbow and Bow River at the same time. And he drew, you know, it had a line showing how much of downtown would be flooded, you know, showed areas of Bowness, how bad it was, Elbow Park. But I just remember seeing downtown and thinking like half of it is flooded. The stampede grounds are underwater in this, in this, in this map. And I just, I, I was sort of dumbfounded. And even at this time, we didn't talk about it being as a result of climate change. Um, but it was interesting that, you know, later when this flood actually happened, you know, this professor basically predicted what the impact could be. And, it, you know, you never hear that spoken about in mainstream media or anywhere else. So that's, it's quite interesting um, to, to have had that experience uh, in a class and then see it happen, you know, 15 years later. In terms of uh, seeing a f another future disaster like the flood we had in 2013, um, I would say that what, what brings me hope about that is the amount of work that's gone into trying to prevent future floods from happening on on the Elbow River. Um, and changes they've made actually on the Bow River, which I didn't mention, is that they now, this, um, I believe it's the province actually pays Transelta to keep the ghost dam lower through the end of July, or sorry, through the end of June than they previously did. And, and why they pay them is because they generate power off of the dam at the ghost dam. And um, when they have lower water levels, they can't gener generate as much power. So in order for them to, to lower the levels to protect the flood, they get paid. So I think changes like that give me hope that, that you know, that will help minimize some of the impacts of flooding in, in Calgary and Southern Alberta in the future. That was Jared Whistle, president of Whistle Contracting. I could never imagine seeing the bridge washed out in front of you. Me neither, especially when that bridge is like your only way out. Yeah, I would never survive. Now we will hear from Jacob Voss, co-CEO of the company Buildster and an engineer who studied at the University of Wageningen in the Netherlands during a storm with strong winds and heavy rain. What is the Netherlands like when it comes to climate? Um, it's a rather temperate climate. It's often wet and uh, windy, and the summers are not too hot and the winters are not too cold. How about you yourself? Can you tell me a bit about who you were? I'm Jacob Voss. Uh, I'm 52 years old, and uh, well, I, I work as a software developer. Um, I have my own company. Um, I've lived in Canada since 2016, and I have a wife and two two children. We live uh, outside uh, Calgary, near Mellon, with two dogs and uh, four horses on the, on the property. All right, and could you tell me a bit about who you were when you were growing up? When I was growing up, um, well, I was just a regular kid, I guess. I loved to learn, so it was natural that I 
um, went to university when I uh, got of that age. And then this is where the event happened that we'll be talking about in, the, in a bit. Um, so I studied at the university and started work right after. And well, What were you studying? Uh, it's, it's a study that's called Soil, Water and Atmosphere. But I was doing the water part, so it's hydrology. And who were you living with at the time the storm happened? Uh, I lived in an apartment with two other guys and uh, also students at the university. So we shared that apartment. We each had our own bedroom, but we had shared living room and kitchen and bathroom. Uh, how old were you when the storm happened? I must have been 22 because it was in 92. And, well, I'm born in 1970, so... Uh, how did you come to be in Wageningen other than university, or is it just university? Yeah, just university, yeah. University was located there, so it was, instead of traveling from home to university and back, I wanted to, you know, live close to where I studied, and that was Wageningen, so that's why we lived there. What about, what was Wageningen like before the storm? Um, well, it was... Uh, not too big of a city. I think you can compare it with uh, in size, in, in number of inhabitants with Cochrane, for example, or Airdrie, that, that in that range. Um, it's um, situated along the Rhine, River Rhine, uh, so it's pretty low-lying. Um, it has an old uh, downtown, and, but it was damaged in, in World War II quite a bit, so there's not much left standing of that. and. But university is pretty, because it's not too big of a town, university is present throughout town. There's a lot of university stuff going on there. It's a, it was a cozy town back then. Okay, so regarding the storm itself, obviously everyone has different memories, so I'm just going to ask a few questions about that. So can you just describe how you became aware of this storm? Yeah, from what I remember, um, it's of course pretty, it, it's quite a while ago, but from what I remember, we had some predictions in in the weather forecast and that it could be a pretty severe storm um, but there was not much warning as in how severe it would get when it happened and what was happening to you during the storm well i was mostly at home uh, i remember that um, so i was i was sitting at home and just hoping Electricity wouldn't, you know, stop working and stuff like that. And at, there were times when we were afraid that the window, because the living room had a pretty big window, and it was single pane glass, so it was not too sturdy. And there were times when we were afraid that that would just get blown out. And, and as a matter of fact, it happened in a, in a number of apartments in the building, and the building because there were a number of buildings next to each other. So there were a number of apartments where that actually happened. That windows got blown out, or rather, in to the house. How long did the storm last for? It started during the daytime and it lasted throughout the night. So it was, uh, I, I don't know if it was 24 hours, but it was pretty long. It was almost a day. Right. And can you describe any sights, sounds and smells that you remember from the storm? Yeah, well, <laughs> sounds of course, of course, the wind um, and the sound of the window and the windows moving because every time there were these huge blasts of wind coming against the windows and um, yeah. How about thunder? Any thunder or? No, there was no thunder and lightning. It was just pure uh, wind and rain and more wind and and it's it, it also wasn't um, a tornado. The storms in the Netherlands often are more just you know like these huge wind blasts and um, 
severe wind continuing uh, throughout the storm. Um, so it was not a tornado, but rather just a very heavy storm. Um, we did see trees getting blown over and, and stuff like that, so yeah. Like full trees from the roots up or just? Yeah, yeah, that happened a lot. <laughs> so do you remember anything that was happening to you after the storm? Um, Perhaps any ca canceled classes, any roadblocks? Uh, I think the next day when we, ro when we, we, we biked everywhere, we had uh, bicycles. Um, so I don't know if I've, during the storm, we were biking and at a certain point we had to cross uh, a big road that ran through the town. So it was a long straight road and it was precisely in the direction the wind was blowing in. Like a, like a main street type of road? Yes, yes. And we were cycling there and the wind came on so f so hard, um, so heavy, that me and a few other students were cycling together. We were just picked up by the wind and blown into the uh, bushes next to the, the bushes and the against the trees next to the road. And it was that was happening during the storm. But after the storm, um, yeah, I think we saw fallen trees, but because we were on the bike, we didn't have much, you know, we could just go around that. Um, I don't remember if any lessons were canceled. I don't think so. I think everything next day just, you know, happened. There were just not, not everybody was there because people had to come in from outside town. Some just couldn't ma make it or just stayed away. All right. And what effect did this storm have on you, if any? Well, no long-lasting effects or anything. It was just a very heavy storm that produced a lot of damage in, in town. And um, so the effect was mostly short-lived. Like, you know, you have all this mess on the streets. Um, of course, I was being blown off my bike, li literally taken into the air and, you know, pushed next onto next to the road. That was, that was you know, kind of terrifying <laughs> because you'd lose control at that moment. But it didn't make me afraid of biking or anything. I would just, I, I think I would maybe not go out again if, if the storm, if there was a storm like that on the bike. I would just rather stay home. How did you feel seeing all this effects the storm had on Wageningen? Well, um, it made me feel, I was just happy that our windows stayed whole. Um, and we, we we knew a lot of people living in the building, and the people that had their windows blown in, we checked in on them the day after, like how are you, how they were doing and stuff like that. Because it can, you know, if if it's if the wind's blowing that hard and it blows your window, it breaks your window, the glass shards fly into the house. So that was, um, you know, you just wanted to know that everybody was fine after that. And luckily nobody I knew got wounded, but uh, it could easily have happened. I, 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 I know people died during that storm because people were outside, you know, in cars and stuff. There were some trees falling on people and uh, people died certainly during that storm. I don't remember how many exactly, but people died. Yeah. So how does, how does this storm make you feel about climate change? Uh, well, you know, it, it makes you realize that um, um, nature and climate is, of course, part of nature is, uh, you know, you have to take that seriously. Um, th don't take it lightly if people warn you about a heavy storm or heavy. And it, it might happen more often or storms might be more intense. Like for the Netherlands back then, that was a very 
an extremely rare storm, as in how strong it was and how long it lasted. And um, if it happens more often, you know, uh, people should just learn more, learn how to how to live with it. Like I said, we, I just went outside, and in hindsight, I shouldn't have done that, for example. So you you know, you, you have to be prepared for what's coming and what's happening around you. Yeah, like kind of like how like with the blizzards and like the heavy snow in Canada, like sometimes people just stay home from school or work. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, but sometimes it's just not smart to, you know, you, you just have to say okay, you know. <laughs> Nature is throwing this curveball at us, and we can't. We just can't go outside. We have to take it easy. Yeah. So, regarding any solutions about climate disasters, uh, what do you think could be done to help people like yourself if a storm happened again, like a storm of that severity? Um, we'll make good weather predictions. That you know, um, and I, th I think it's a tricky thing because we see uh, we've seen a lot in the Netherlands. Uh, while I live there, they have this warning system, like they give storms or events a code, like code yellow, code orange, code red, code black. Um, and then when they say it's going to be code red and everybody should, st should stay indoors and then nothing really happens, people, and if that, this happens a few times, people don't listen to it anymore. They, they'll say, oh, code red, no, it's, <laughs> nothing will happen. So it's, I, I realize it's a difficult thing. Um, because weather predictions are never, you know, 100% accurate, um, but still, they should and can be improved and make people better aware of what's coming on to them. And um, maybe, uh, and I think they improved that in the Netherlands, a, a better warning system. Because back then we don't, we didn't have mobile phones, so you, like what you have here now and also in the Netherlands, that you can get alerts on your phone if something really bad is happening, like tornado is spotted and in nearby, you get a warning here. So that that stuff is improving all the time and getting more accurate and better. And I think that's that's an important thing. Yeah, like the emergency alert, like yeah, yeah. either stabbings, you know, like the ones yeah, that were in Saskatchewan or, you know, like tornadoes, stuff like that. Like yeah. the emergency alerts, you yeah, mean? Because if you get an alert, like a tornado is nearby, you know, right? So you can go watch and keep keep an eye on the sky around you. And if you see a tornado, see, co see cover and, you know, and not be surprised by it. Yeah, so... What do you think could be done about the climate change that is increasing the frequency and intensity of such disasters? Um, that's a tricky question, I, th I think. Um, my personal opinion is that we can do a whole lot about it in, in the way that we can prevent the climate from changing because climate has always been changing. Maybe we can try to make it change less or we can... Um, um, you know, we can learn how to live with it, adapt to it better. Um, I think that's the best thing to do. Uh, people who think that they can stop climate change, I think that's the wrong uh, message because you can't stop climate change. You cannot fix climate and, and not make a change at all. That's not possible. That's just not how it works. Looking back on this storm, how do you feel about it now? Um, well, it's an experience that, um, you know, you, you'll never forget that you were picked up by the wind and, and thrown a, f a couple of meters sideways. It's, uh, it's not that I lie awake at night about, about this, um, but it's also something I'll never forget. And it will uh, always uh, remind me how powerful nature can be. 
All right. And what brings you hope for the future? In general, the science. So discoveries that are made and um, improvements that you know people make or discover that can improve, like improve weather forecasts, but also uh, if we talk about climate change, if we want to lessen the effect humans have on climate change, um, I think scientific advancements are, are the best way to go and um, you know find new ways to harness energy and to create energy, do it in a, in a, in a good way and in a sensible way. That's, uh, that gives me hope for the future. That's Jacob Voss, engineer and co-CEO of the company Buildster. I don't think I've ever heard of someone being picked up from their bike by the wind. That would be absolutely terrifying. It's a good thing biking isn't common in, in Canada then, <laughs> isn't it? Exactly. Biking is so much more common in the Netherlands than, than it is up here in Canada. Thanks for listening to Weathering the Storm, stories of the climate crisis from Alberta and around the world. I'm Olivia Whistle. And I'm Charlotte Voss. This series is powered by Shaw and a part of the Community Podcast Initiative based out of Mount Royal University. It was produced on the lands that are home to the Nitsitapi, Iahe Nakoda, Tsutina, and Métis people. We recognize the stewards of these lands and we hope to contribute a better under understanding of our environment by sharing the stories of those affected by climate change. Special thanks to our partner, the Climate Disaster Project, and our guests, Jared Whistle and Jacob Voss, for joining us. You can learn more about the Climate Disaster Project at climatedisasterproject.com. Be sure to subscribe to, hear, to the show to hear the latest episodes of Weathering the Storm and discover new podcasts from the Community Podcast Initiative at thepodcaststudio.ca.